We turn once again to an gospel account, and this we found in John chapter 19. Beginning at stand at verse five, at verse five. Then came Jesus forth wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate saith unto them, Behold the man. When the chief priests therefore and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was the more afraid, and went again into the judgment hall, and saith unto Jesus, Whence art thou? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then saith Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power, that is authority, to crucify thee, and I have power to release thee? Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. From thenceforth Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. And it was the preparation of the Passover, and about the sixth hour he saith unto the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto him, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then delivered he him, therefore, unto them to be crucified, and they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two other with him on either side one and Jesus in the midst. Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city, and it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Then said the chief priests of the Jews to Pilate, write not the King of the Jews, but that he said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments, made four parts, to every soldier a part, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said, therefore, among themselves, let no man rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, they parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. Now there stood by the cross Jesus, his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus, therefore, saw his mother and disciples standing by whom he loved, he saith to his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her into his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there were 
was set a vessel full of vinegar. They filled a sponge with vinegar, put it upon hyssop, and put it to his mouth. Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar. He said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Thus far the reading of the gospel record. Verses 23 and 24 constitute the passage we consider this evening. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier a part, also his coat. Now the coat was without seam woven from the top throughout. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which saith they parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. It is striking how often in the scriptures references made to clothing and in a symbolic spiritual way. We have a passage here which speaks of Christ being disrobed, his clothes, of course, being stripped from him, having a significant gospel implication. Christ was unclothed that we might be clothed upon. There it is, in a nutshell. From a certain point of view, the heart of the passage and of the gospel itself. But there is more woven into the fabric of this text than just that. This isn't the first time scripture has made reference to Christ Jesus and his clothing. Go back to his birth. You know the passage well. Your children have receded, probably recited it to you, if not at church, perhaps in a school program. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. How many times behind this pulpit hasn't a preacher used that text in your hearing at Advent and then use that to preach the gospel, the son of David, leaving his glory behind? not wrapped in princely robes, not of linen and of wool, but in swaddling clothes, becoming poor that we might really be the wealthiest of people when all is said and done. 
But when it comes to clothing, it's not only with reference to Christ Jesus that has spiritual significance. Is it not striking, beloved, that if you go to the opening of human history and the fall of our first parents, who once they ate the forbidden fruit, suddenly saw something they had not seen and thought of, that they were naked, and they realized now they were filled not with love but with lust. And the Lord God comes to them. And having reproved and rebuked them, what is the first thing that he does? He slays an animal that they may have coats of skin and have their nakedness filled at the price of another, by the blood of another. Be it an animal at this point, the clothed by the sacrifice of a bloody sacrifice, covering their nakedness at a cost. Pointing to whom, beloved? And pointing to what? What sacrifice? Who sacrificed? You could answer that. You could preach that. Don't need me to tell you. You know. So scripture opens with God providing a clothing for those who left to themselves are filled with a nakedness and a shame. At the price of a sacrifice. That's Genesis, the very opening of history. And now, beloved, go to the last book of the Bible in the closing in the closing chapters. And there are a people who are clothed with white garments, with the garments of righteousness. What right did those sinners have to enter the glory of heaven clothed as a bride for her husband? Who gave them that right? What gave them that right? The bridegroom gave them that right, did he not? At what cost? At the cost of his life. And he, being willing to be unclothed, that he might wash his people, and we might be clothed. And so, the gospel. Beloved, that Christ Jesus was willing to be stripped of his clothing reveals so much about the depth of his love, does it not? But that he was stripped of his clothing by the human race also reveals much about the sinfulness of man doesn't it? In this passage, beloved, much is laid bare. In this passage at the foot of the cross, what is laid bare is the heart of mankind left to himself, scarcely better than ravenous beasts and worthy of condemnation. 
all the evil of the heart of mankind is exposed. But also, beloved, what is laid bare is the gospel. That God and his Son so loved that he would subject his Son, and his Son was willing to subject himself even to this for the likes of us. There it is. Now let's turn to the text and reflect upon it and develop the theme a bit. The Son of God. We read it. He's made himself equal to God. He claims to be the Son of God, which was the truth, of course, and they crucify him for the truth. But the hatred of the Jews is such at this point of the ungodly that even if he were the Son of God, and they were convinced he were the Son of God, we do not want this Son of God. We'll crucify him anyway. Made an open shame, treated with contempt, fulfilling prophecy. We sang it already, a versification of it, and serving the gospel and the gospel word. The scene concerning the dividing and the distribution of Christ's clothing takes place, of course, at the foot of the cross. Christ Jesus has been hoisted up and he hangs there riveted on the cross and the waves of pain roll through his body and he pre prepares himself for the billows of wrath to roll over his soul. And there at the foot of the cross are the soldiers with his, can I even call him a pile of clothing? a very small pile, if you will. But I want to pause here before we go on into the text with a practical consideration. Because when Jesus comes to the end of his life on earth, there's not much that belongs to him with material things, is there. Just this little pile of clothing. Christ Jesus' business on earth, beloved, was not to accumulate things. That was not his business. That was not his preoccupation. That was not the measure of his worth or his accomplishments, was it? Now the question, is it ours? Is it yours? 
measure of your worth is what you have. And your preoccupation is what you might yet get. And that's kind of what we live for. And by that, we measure ourselves. ourselves. Easy to do, isn't it? Must it be that way? Ought it to be that way? No. I'm not saying we must feel guilty about having goods, but how do we measure ourselves? What do we live for? Is it what we live for? Or is it whom we live for? Because this Jesus ends his life without very much because of who he lived for and for whom he died. And we're sitting, and you're sitting in the pews, aren't you? His business was not to accumulate goods. That's not the purpose of his life. And beloved, neither must it be ours. And we must examine ourselves again and again at the foot of the cross, whether or not it's so. And if it is becoming so, Lord, by thy Holy Spirit, lead me, that I may reflect Christ Jesus, who lived for me, for us, that I likewise may live for him and those whom he so lived, so loved. Now we go on. We said he had been hoisted up. Before they hoisted him up, of course, they had laid the cross on the ground, and then they had stripped him of his clothing. Whether they left him with a loincloth or not is subject to debate and discussion. Sometimes they did. Usually they didn't. It didn't matter for all intents and purposes. He will be naked upon the cross. And they drive the spikes through his wrists and ankles. And they put that little shelf under his heel so that he does not simply sag. And some ropes around his forearms to help hang him on the cross. And they hoist him up and drop it into the ground. And then back up to see their handiwork. And seeing that the cross is stable there in the ground they turned their attention elsewhere to the pile of clothing that they have from the three, from Christ Jesus. And it's interesting, his clothing would be mixed with that of two thieves who probably got a hold of their clothing, but who knows what dishonest means, crucified with the thieves and with the criminals and even his clothing, so to speak, mixed with theirs. But they have hoisted him up, beloved, that he might be an open spectacle. That's all part of the shame of the crucifixion. Crucifixion, they took everything from a man. They were not interested in even leaving him with a shred of dignity, not a shred if they could help it. And because he's a criminal, they're saying, as a criminal, you have forfeited everything that you own, and you have no right to anything, and we, as it were, disinherit you from the human race, and we hang you there for an open shame, and we show our contempt for you, and now all those who may gaze upon you as a spectacle may 
shout and scream their scorn and the ridicule at you as well. You are a worm as a naked beast and no man. This they did to him. To him, beloved. The Lord of all. And when it says this they did this did they to him these things therefore the soldiers did. In the end it's not only referring to the soldiers for us, it's referring by implication as well to those who delivered him over to the soldiers. And it's not simply Pilate, as Christ said, if you recall, because those who have delivered me over to you have the greater fault in this all as they pressed Pilate to crucify him. Why do you think they wanted to crucify him? Because they knew that if they crucified him, not simply kill him, crucify him, they would hold him in shame and strip him naked and they could throw their contempt at him and strip him from every dignity, every last shred of dignity. And this they would call their defining moment. Not only the Roman soldiers here, beloved, the Jewish nation led by their leaders, not simply kill him, kill him, crucify him, crucify him put him to an open shame and stripped him of every dignity as we can. And the soldiers, obeying orders, have nailed him to the cross. They have hoisted him up. And now they turn their attention elsewhere. And of course, it's to the clothing on the ground. Jesus' clothing, which would have amounted to his sandals, some inner garments, and outer garments, and this robe called here uh, a coat, but a, a robe. This was common, of course, at crucifixions, not only stripping the, the criminals of their last vestige of dignity and everything they had, but to then divvy it up amongst the soldiers who were those who to, were to go and enact the crucifixion and nail them to the, to the cross. This was part of what you might call the spoils that was given to them. They were not paid much, these Roman soldiers, but they would join the army because at least it gave them food to eat every day and a roof over their, over their heads and a place to seat and sleep and then some camaraderie as well. And so they made their occupation in, in the army, rough as it was, but at least they could survive and they had some kind of a living if they went to battle, of course, and they had a victory, then they could go over the field of the victory and strip those whom they had conquered and slain of what they had. Often the office, officers, of course, took the first choice if they could find anything of jewelry. Which sometimes they might find something of jewelry, of a, of a ring or a necklace or maybe even earrings that the barbarians might be wearing, and that would, of course, may have, maybe have some worth, and the officers might take that. But they left off often most of it for the soldiers because it would keep the army happy. Well, this isn't war from that point of view, but if you were assigned to a crucifixion, which happens, you know, on a regular account, by the thousands and the tens of thousands, the Roman soldiers over the Mediterranean world crucified, they got to pick through the spoils. And here are the spoils of the three Jesus spoils. Among them, sandals, inner garment, outer garment, not much 
of any worth, but there was one item that might have some value, and that's this coat that's described here in the passage, and sometimes is called a robe. It was unique from this point of view that it was woven from the top throughout. It was without seams, and that was a somewhat rare commodity because it took an excess of labor and it required someone of great skill. It wasn't simply a tunic, and then arms were attached by, by, by seams, you know, to the, to the coat, to the robe, but from top to bottom with one kind of a thread over a loom, probably, probably by some woman of the circle that followed Jesus as a token of her love so that this would be somewhat of a heavy garment and could be worn in all the weather through which Jesus did his gospel ministry. It wasn't always sunshine, you know. There was rain and cold as well, and this was the garment with which he wrapped himself. And this would have some value, maybe to the soldier themselves when they went to battle, to have this as a blanket and a, and a covering. Maybe to sell some to some others for a few shekels to add to their scanty pay. And rather than simply to cut the thing into four parts, and now you have what? Four pieces? Four rags? What good is that? Let's decide that one of us shall have it intact. And how to decide that? Let's not rend it. Let's cast lots whose it shall be. And that's, of course, what they will proceed to do. By chance, one will receive it, they say. Of course, there's nothing about this scene that is governed by chance, not even the casting of the lots, as you know. The casting of the lots into the lap, as Proverbs said, is by even the will of the Lord. And certainly at this scene, everything is done according to God's predetermined purpose. And whichever soldier got the robe, that also was determined by God's own purpose to what end, we're not told, but one of them walks off with this as the prize. But what's significant, beloved, is that the soldiers do this while Jesus is yet alive. There's nothing in this passage that's anything to say about any kind of human decency or regard for another. Christ Jesus has not even died, and already they're playing games over his garments and deciding who gets who and dispossessing him and going ready to go their way. Imagine a nurse is in a hospital, and she's going down a hallway, and she's heading for the room of some aging widow and mother, and she hears this talk coming from the room, and she turns, and she stands at the door, and here's this aging woman on her deathbed into consciousness and out of consciousness, and she has perhaps three daughters, and they're haggling over who gets her ring, and I want the necklace, and I get the, the watch with, with the diamonds. Well, who gets the brooch? Well, why should you have two and I have one? Let's flip for it. Heads, I get it. Tails, you get it. 
settle between two, and now it's me and you. And the nurse sits there, and she watches and observes this as the daughters, mother still living, are haggling who gets what of her position, possessions. And the old lady comes into consciousness and hears them haggling over her possession while she's still alive. And this is what you think of me? You can't even wait till I'm dead before you decide how to divide my few belongings? That's all I mean to you? A scandal, beloved. Where in the world is the consideration and the regard? There is none here. He hasn't even passed the scene. Already they're dividing what he has and playing games, if you will. But understand, this isn't simply a manifestation of the callousness of Roman soldiers to what human nature can get. This has to do, beloved, with the Jewish nation, as we have said. The whole nation is there, and members of the nation, because it's close to the road, are passing by, and they see him hanging on the cross, this Jesus of Nazareth, and many of those who just a week ago had probably been out on the highway saying, the son of David, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, maybe we want him to be king, are now passing by and mocking and reviling him. Why? Because he's weak. Powerless. What does he have to offer us in the way of strength? He can't even save his own life. How in the world can we expect him to save our lives and give us victory? You can do with that man as will. The nation, beloved, is there. Not only those who pass by, but there are those who at the foot of the cross, of course, who are gloating in this. Probably giving each other, as it were, high fives. This is the culmination, as it were, of all that they have accomplished. It is, as we have said, the very reason why they wanted him crucified. Not simply put to death, they want to make him an open shame. They want to strip him of every shred of human dignity. And the question, of course, is why? Why? Something probably the Roman centurion asks at the foot of the cross, who watches this and observes this and has comments to make, as you know from your gospel history. Surely this was a righteous man, he says later on. But it must have simply caught his attention that this is very strange that the Jews should have so much hatred towards one of their own. Usually, if a Jew was going to be crucified, there were many of those who were opposing the Roman soldiers taking a, one of their countrymen and putting him to death in this shameless fashion. But here, very evident, they don't mind this Jesus being put to death in a shameless fashion. In fact, he almost gets the idea that the soldiers have to be here to protect this Jesus from them tearing him apart themselves, limb by limb. It doesn't seem that they can heap enough shame upon this Jesus of Nazareth. Why? What has he done to them? He's gone through the nation doing good, hasn't he? Healing the sick by the hundreds and perhaps even by the Thousands. He hasn't done evil. And, of course, as Pilate said, we, I can find no fault 
in him. And yet they want him crucified, and they want to put him to an open shame and pour as most contempt upon him as they possibly can. Why, beloved, this hatred of the human heart towards Christ Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth? And it has to do, of course, with his righteousness that exposes the unrighteousness of the hearts of men. He is the truth. He is the light. And the light has a way of exposing darkness and that which men are inclined to cover up and don't want people to know or to acknowledge. And this Jesus of Nazareth knew them like an open book. He's the one who had said to the Pharisees, of course, you are white-washed sepulchred. You have a nice gravestone up there, washed and clean, but it simply covers what's beneath the surface, and what's beneath the surface are dead man's bones. There is a stink, and it's not simply a stink before the children of men if it were exposed, but it's a stink to the nostrils of the righteous God, is it not? He knew them, and they knew that he knew them, and he knew what was in a man, and he exposes them in their sins and in their self-righteousness and their love of themselves and their demeaning and belittling of others, of people who would simply use others to their own advantage. The hypocrisy of the heart and what lays under the surface that Christ has a way of lifting the stone, the rock, as it were, and all the grubs and all the maggots are there. And they didn't care to have this exposure before the eyes of their fellow man and before the face of God. Who does? Who does? Do we? Not by nature. Charged with gossiping? Who are you to charge with gossiping? Too high an opinion of yourself? Who are you to charge with a high opinion of myself? I am rude to others? Who are you to charge me with that? Inconsiderate? I don't treat my spouse with the care and consideration I should? Who are you to charge me with that? And it's one thing, beloved, if another sinner comes to you and says, you're guilty of gossip. You're guilty of a too high opinion of yourself. You're too preoccupied with the things of this life. You are not considerate enough of even your own spouse or your children. That's one thing if another sinner comes to us because you can always say, well, guess what? I can tell you some things about you too. But that doesn't work with Christ Jesus, does it? When the word of God comes and says, you're guilty of gossip, <coughs> then you and I have to say, yes, Lord, I am guilty of gossip. Yes, Lord, I have too high an opinion of myself. Yes, Lord, I have not treated my spouse with the consideration or a fellow saint with the regard and forbearance of love as I ought. Forgive me, Lord, and teach me 
control my speech and to do as is required of me. Isn't that true? If the Lord Jesus says that and the word of God says that to you, do we ever hear that and apply it to self? It takes grace. Leave it to me myself, I'm not going to. I might apply it to you. But I'm not very quick to apply it to myself. But when the word of God comes, then there are those who say, yes, Lord, it is me. It's not my brother, it's not my sister, but it's me, O Lord, guilty of those things. That's the work of the Holy Spirit, you see. And that takes grace and grace and more grace and why you and I have to be seeking that grace day by day. But here is a people who are not being graced, beloved. Here is a nation that is filled with themselves and their own carnal desires and to have status amongst the nations. And they are filled with an unrighteousness and a turned against the truth. And this Jesus has exposed them in this. And now this is their revenge, you see. Now we will be vengeful as he has laid us bare we will silence him. So we need no longer to hear these words. Huh. Little do they know when he is sent, he's going to send forth 12 to preach to them. And they will hear these words again through the 12 and then through preaching that goes to the very end of the age. Nonetheless, they're thinking they can silence him and no longer have the guilt, the guilt of their conscience pricked and stabbed. And so let us get our revenge. Silence him and hold him to an open contempt. And so they do, beloved, and in doing this, lay themselves bare. The enmity of their heart, and why they are before the face of God, worthy of condemnation, as every man is, beloved, and woman, apart from the mercy of this one who was willing to have himself stripped of every dignity, to be unclothed upon, that we might be clothed upon, our sins covered and removed, and even re-inherited. Come to that at the conclusion of the sermon. But this was done as we read that the scriptures might be fulfilled The soldiers, it was not the intent of the soldiers, of course. They knew nothing of the scriptures. They cared nothing for the scriptures. They were simply governed by a certain greed, if you will, and covetousness and see if we can get some clothing and perhaps sell them for a few shekels. Nonetheless, what they do is the fulfillment of scripture because moving these events is not simply, you know, the will of men and the will of wicked men at that. Moving this event ultimately, of course, is the will of almighty God. There is, beloved, no happenstance here. This is the divine purpose and as this, as you know, is the culmination of history from a certain point of view, what we call the history of sin and grace. That in the end, sin might be addressed and for his own, for God's own, might be paid for, and grace in the end might have its victory when all is said 
and done. But this goes back, you know, to the first sermon of the New Testament age on Pentecost by the Apostle Peter. And you get towards the end of the sermon, if you, re if you recall, and we read that Peter says this towards the end of his sermon on Pentecost, him being delivered by the determinate counsel of, of God, the counsel of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. You have taken him by wicked hands and crucified and slain, but that's because he was delivered to you by the determinate will and counsel of God. God has his purpose in this. And the end, of course, it's a purpose of judgment. But at the heart of it is a purpose of salvation. It has to do, we read here, with the fulfillment of Scripture. Psalm 22, as we sung a versification of it, and Psalm 22, of course, is a psalm of David, just as Psalm 23, which follows it, is a psalm of David. And it begins with those well-known words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And, of course, those are words that you hear at the cross during the three hours of darkness from the very lips of Christ. But the whole of it is written almost as it were written by Christ himself as he suffers and he dies. And someone describes it, perhaps. I am a worm and no man, it says in verse 6, and a reproach of men and despised of the people, true of Christ, of course. They see me and they scorn, and they shoot at the lips, which occurred, of course, at the foot of the cross. And now this, this is what they say. He trusted in the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing that he delighted him. The very words that the leaders of the Jews took up at the foot of the cross. And then you go on, and finally you come up to verse 18. And they parted my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. David writes that. Question, of course, did that actually ever happen in David's life? There is no evidence that that particular reality ever happened in David's life, that they parted his garments amongst themselves and cast lots for his vesture. But you understand that David is speaking, moved as the Spirit, and he's, working, he's speaking in a certain poetic fashion, and it was probably written as he's being, being pursued by Saul, possibly by Absalom, some think, and his life is at stake, and there's animosity towards him, but almost certainly, probably more likely, when he's be, being pursued by Saul, and there's a whole element of the nation that wants to put him into David's threat for Saul, as they were yet loyal to King Saul. And what David knew was that if Saul would ever, King Saul would ever capture him, he ins indeed would take from David everything that he had, including probably his clothes, and then put him to death. Now, the simple fact is the Lord protected David. If the Lord had not protected and spared David, that's what would have happened to him. He would have been disinherited too, because they knew that he had been anointed by Samuel by this time, and Saul was going to brook no competition. He would have simply said he has forfeited all, disinherited all, and we will leave him with nothing but his naked corpse, if you will, if the Lord had not protected David. But the Lord protected and spared David. But when it comes to Christ Jesus, beloved, the son of David, 
The Lord does not protect and spare his son from this shame. And this psalm in the end, by the work of the Holy Spirit, has reference to that future event and that future reality. And so you have what's called the fulfillment of Scripture. As you know, beloved, when you read the Gospel accounts, and especially when you come to the cross, again and again the Gospel writers would say, and this fulfilled this Scripture, and this fulfilled that Scripture. You go on to verse 28 of this chapter, for instance. After this, Jesus, knowing all things were accomplished, that the Scriptures might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now the question is, why do the Gospel writers again and again, go back to Old Testament scriptures and say, here's the fulfillment. This is done, but this was prophesied by the Old Testament. Well, you realize as well as I do that that has some bearing about the inspiration and the trustworthiness of scripture, that the scripture, to know all this, thousands of years or a thousand years before it happened, could not simply be the word of men, what they want to look at it, of course, today, as the church apostatizes in the world, just the word of, of men. Men are saying these things and writing these things. And then you go to the New Testament and say, just men? Do you realize how many things said in the Old Testament come to pass in the New Testament and have to do with the ministry of this Jesus of Nazareth and culminate in his cross so that what you might call word after word and phrase after phrase is fulfilled at the death of this Jesus of Nazareth. The Bible is no ordinary book. It is evident by the fulfillment of these prophecies that the Holy Spirit wrote these words or had men write these words. And if it's the word of God, you, brother, better submit to its authority because it is truth and its truthful stand. And it ought to be that which rules your life and your faith. This is not simply the words of men. The Holy Spirit is directing these things, and the evidence of that is in the fulfillment of the prophecies that come to pass again and again and again. And here, in this casting of the lots and gambling over the clothing of this Jesus of Nazareth. But, beloved, to refer to the fulfillment of the scriptures, the writers of the scriptures are not simply pointing out that the Bible itself is as one, one unit, one, one garment with a, without, without seam, as it were, woven throughout one harmonious whole, but it also has something to do with the cross itself and the purpose of the cross, and that this Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Messiah, died according to God's purpose. That what goes on here is not the will of wicked men prevailing. This is according to a deeper will that is governing these things. And the apostles had to make this plain, and the writers of the scriptures, because there are those, of course, who challenged that this Jesus could possibly be the Messiah, the Savior, if he died on a cross. How in the world can one who dies on a cross be the one who will deliver us from death? He himself died. 
That doesn't sound like victory and deliverance. That sounds like defeat. And as though he's helpless and he could do nothing about it. So how can you say he's the one who must have faith and he has the power unto salvation? And the answer is because this was foreordained by God and it becomes plain as you study the scriptures that the cross is not the work of men simply though they hold the guilt in desiring it and seeking it and prevailing upon Pilate but there's a deeper will <coughs> at work and it has to do this is the way of salvation itself God has foreordained it because as the apostles would say only in this way could sin be addressed and payment for sin be made. One is reminded, you know, of what you, of what you find in Luke, Luke chapter 24, and the travelers of the road to Emmaus, you recall that, and they say to this stranger who walks alongside them, our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. But we trusted, we thought that it had been he who should have redeemed us. How could he be the Messiah? Even now, they hear about the resurrection, but they're puzzled. What in the world does our salvation and deliverance have to do with the cross. We thought he was going to save us, but he's died. And Christ says, oh, you foolish men, slow of heart to believe what the prophets, notice the prophets have spoken, foretold. Ought not Christ the Messiah to have suffered these things, to enter into his glory and beginning at Moses and all the prophets? The scriptures being fulfilled. He expounded to them the scriptures, the things concerning himself, the prophesied concerning himself. And they began to understand, ah, so it's not defeat after all. It's basic. It's foundational for salvation. This was God's will. He has a purpose in this, namely the payment of sins. There is no other way. Stay with us. Abide with us tonight. Tis eventide. And he breaks bread with them and vanishes to reappear, of course, in the upper room a few hours later. That the scriptures might be fulfilled, you see, proving that the cross is the will of God, and it's his will that is prevailing, and in the end, it's not defeat after all, it is victory, and it is <coughs> salvation. In conclusion, beloved, want to make a main point. And that's this. That this incident in which Christ is stripped of his clothing and becomes an open spectacle and held for contempt must be read in the context of the theme of the Gospel of John. It's only in the Gospel of John that you read this fulfillment of the scriptures. The theme of the Gospel of John is Christ's full and real 
divinity. That's how the book opens, if you recall. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, the same as in the beginning, with God, and so on. <coughs> now, it's not this, beloved, that his being stripped of all his clothing proves his divinity. Being stripped of all his clothing held for contempt does not prove his divinity. His walking on the water would be a proof of that and other things that he did and raising the dead with the power of God at his own word. But, beloved, this does demonstrate something concerning God and the love of God. This is the Son of God, beloved, who is unclothed, who is held to an open shame and dispossessed. But as the Son of God, beloved, he doesn't have to die for his own sake that he may repossess things. Everything that was there at that time was his. The very clothing those who mocked him wore were his. He's the son of God. He's the creator. Everything is his. He doesn't need to die for his own sake that he may repossess things and have the right to them. He dies on behalf of others, beloved have forfeited that right. We, ourselves, as his disciples, one of whom has just denied him with cursing and swearing, and the rest forsook him and fled. That sinful group, but ourselves as well, who have sinned and have only right, one right, to be disinherited and to be stripped of everything and to be left not with a shred of dignity when all is said and done. And this one, Christ Jesus, the Son of God, for our sake, goes to that cross and suffers this indignity that we might be reinstated and we might receive the inheritance, beloved, of all things. He made himself poor, dispossessed for our sake. But not only would we have the right to the clothing on our backs, if you will, but that all things that are his might be ours as well. What's the best known text known in the whole of the world? Comes from the Gospel of John, doesn't it? God so loved that he gave his only begotten, not only to walk this life, but to die in open shame and contempt that we might be his children and heirs to the whole of creation. A love so amazing, so divine, surely beloved, it requires our all. Father in heaven, thou art a gift-giving God. We thank thee for thy son, what he endured for our sakes. And we know now he is in glory, and that glory he had in mind was not only for himself and for thy name, but that we might enjoy it with him. Who are we? We give thee thanks. May the gospel go forth. May he continue to have power and gather his own till he is pleased to come again, the great bridegroom.
for the bride, the church, clothing us with the garments of righteousness and pure white robes. In Jesus' name, amen.